2: Welcome to episode five of Homo
3: Wherever Sapiens. There you are, welcome <laughs> da, 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 to episode five of Homo Sapiens. Today you find us in Shea Sweeney. A new
2: venue for today. I don't think we've recorded here before, have we? No, I don't think
3: we have. And it's the first time I've been in your new kitchen. Belly of a ship was the brief. Belly of a ship. I like that. Yeah, sort of slightly galley then. Yeah, yeah.
2: So we're here. My name is Christopher Sweeney. My name is William Young. Now, there's a couple of things going on for me right now. Week five, there's a food ban, but my friend over there is eating. Have we been banned? Have you heard? No. There's a food ban. What? We've had a couple of complaints. Oh, no, we had another one. What? It seems that some of our listeners don't like the sounds of you chewing, Mr. William. (laughs) Nothing about drinking.
3: (laughs) I've just ordered ordered a kebab. Oh, lovely.
2: (laughs) Coming up this week on Homo Sapiens, we head to South London for a cup of tea with human rights campaigner Peter Tatchell. He is the most incredible man. Mm. He was born in Australia, to very religious parents. Mm.
3: And he sort of found his way, inspired by the black movement in America, to you know, stand up for human rights. Using direct action. Using direct action. He throws himself life and limb before the horse and cart, basically.
4: I was very afraid. You know, I thought I could be killed. Two special branch officers confided in me that you don't realise how much danger you've been in. Now, my reaction was stubborn. (laughs) I'm not going to let the bastards drive me away.
3: I remember seeing him years ago. He was probably one of the only really vocal gay activists out there. And he was painted really badly.
2: He says he feels like a barometer for how LGBT people are treated. You know, he was demonized back then and now he's very accepted. I thought that was really interesting. He said he thought it would take 50 years to get LGBT equality. And it has roughly taken that in, let's say, Britain, for example. And so he was saying, that in the situation in places like Nigeria, thinking about Bissi last week, you know, it takes fifty years, and well, where are they on that route? And his work is not done. I think he's portrayed as a quite a sort of angry and forthright man, and actually, it was really nice that you said he seems quite vulnerable. I agree. I think he seems he's an incredibly kind, vulnerable, gentle man.
4: Yeah, there can be no liberation movement worth anything unless it's inspired by love if you're inspired by love then you're pretty much certain to do the right thing
3: we saw the real him you see him how he is now how work has affected his life his relationships and he was very honest i thought yeah he was amazing amazing man and it was an absolute pleasure to talk to him
2: our fascinating conversation with Peter toucher is coming up
3: i'll tell you what i've done this week yeah. I watched a programme called Queer as Art. Ah. Uh, uh, why was that? Uh, because I'm in it. Ah. Um, I'm not in it very much. Oh. I know. I thought I was giving them gold. I'm sure you were. I don't know. I mean, maybe... Ne- to be honest, Nelly featured in it more than me. Really? Yeah. She is a queer icon. <laughs> Did did they include the dance you did? They didn't include my contemporary dance. Hmm. Um, you know, I, I just felt, what did I feel? I felt used. Um, it's a very good programme and I thought it was really interesting. And can I tell you what I thought was fascinating? Mm-hmm. Is they were talking about how queer art and LGBT people were being beamed into people's sitting rooms without them realising. And one of the examples they used was coronation street which was created by a gay man in manchester who loved uh drag queens and so a lot of the characters spawned from drag queens so it was sort of this kind of like subliminal way of getting to people's sitting rooms and i would never have thought about that thinking of queer art Mm. um and i'd really recommend it sandy Toxvick is in it i know we, we, oh, um, Sandy. Oh, Sandy. 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 <laughs> <laughs> you know where
2: we are. Hello are. at homosapienspodcast.com. Like the prodigal son, we will welcome you home if you choose to come to us. I just adore her. She's in it and a
3: really interesting... She's um, free for them then. <laughs> Do
2: you know what I did this week? I went to a swimming pool. Yeah. It was sunny. Everyone was sunbathing. And we were having a funny conversation afterwards, weren't we? Saying how getting your top off is horrible. I hadn't realised,
3: and I'm really trying to catch it now, how often actually I can shame myself for my body. Mm. And I completely own that. I'm not saying other people do it. And it can come with seeing someone walking along the street who's got a body that I think is better than mine, is there the, such a thing? Oh, thanks, Chris. Okay. Um, well, I suppose Arnie back in the day. Um, and, you know, like looking in the mirror or looking at a magazine. Mm. Also, I think it's a kind of climate. Advertising, as we know, and more and more, uses people with, in inverted commas, the perfect body. Mm. I don't know what the perfect body is. Mm. I'm just being told what the perfect body is, as slim and muscly as possible, um, you know, no fat on the tummy for a man. I don't know however big they think their muscles should be. And I have noticed that there are a lot more men who do go to the gym. And I said, well, I'm getting hot now. And Mm. I guess what I like to tune in with is what is my intention for exercise? Is my intention to try and get this perfect body or is it to get fit or Mm. is it a combination of the two? And Mm. I think it's fine, like, if I want to lose a little bit of, belly fat because maybe it's not that healthy but it's not fine if i'm constantly conscious and shaming myself mm. i quite like owning that i haven't realized that before mm. and now i'm really watching it and and interested in where it comes from
2: yeah and i'd be interested to hear what people listening think i'd love to know because i know that for example there was a survey attitude did a survey of people thought they should have a really good body, but only 60% thought their partner should. So it's interesting to see that... Disparity, I guess. Yeah, where you you put the pressure on yourself but not on others. And you think that you can only get a partner if you've got a good body when actually you wouldn't look for it in another. It just came to me as I peeled off my T-shirt by the swimming pool (laughs) and thought, it's all in your head, Chris. (laughs)
3: Thing is, it can, it is only you because know, I look at pictures when I was much lighter and, and skinnier as a twenty-two-year-old, and I think probably even then I was like, oh, well, I could look more this or more that. Mm. Um, so, we'd love to hear from people, yeah, what they think of it, if they have it, if they don't have it, why they think it is. Would mm. be cool. I think it's quite a big topic, actually. We could do more on it next series.
2: I'm going a bit through emails, but we've had some quite funny ones this week. Go on. Um, you are going to wet your knickers. Um, <laughs> Not again. <laughs> uh, we've had an email from Luke at RadicalTeatowel.com.
3: <gasps> Speak on, Saying,
2: hi, guys. Saw the interview you did with David Pollock in the Metro. And, of course, we couldn't miss the bit at the end about having your own tea towel range. See, <gasps> you're around the universe. Yes. We'd be delighted to work with you on this and if it's something you're interested in doing with Radical Tea Towel. So they are a company who... Make details which say, for example, resist Trump or a woman's march apron.
3: Mm, how much are they? They sell for
2: 11 pounds for a year okay, £11 tea pounds
3: Doing sums, 11 pounds doing sums. So we need to sell about a million to get the house in Okay, let's
1: do it.
2: <laughs> 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 We're on. One of the things I've been doing this week is talking about um, something called Lesbian Bed Death. Have you ever heard of it? No. So, it's... is it a computer game? <laughs> Yeah, it's the sequel to Lesbian Vampire Slayers. It's a phenomenon that people... This is kind of hearsay. This is not a medical thing. uh, That often in long-term lesbian relationships, your sex life completely dies. Lesbian... Bed death is a term, I'm reading from Wikipedia here is a term coined by University of Washington sociologist Pepper Schwartz in her 1983 book American Couples. According to Schwartz, lesbian couples in committed relationships have less sex than any other type of couple, and they generally experience less sexual intimacy in the longer the relationships last. The study has been criticized by the lesbian community and some psychologists as a popular myth. But what I wondered is if we could hear from our listeners about that because there's a few things going on for an LGBTQ plus audience that I think it would be really nice to hear from our listeners about because it has to be, it needs to be a discussion, is the idea of long-term relationships and sex dying off. And when it comes to a gay relationship, sometimes it's quite hard to discuss with your straight friends perhaps what it is that goes on for you sexually. Mm. And I think a lot of people have felt that it can be a slightly more clandestine part of their life. Mm. And I think perhaps mm. that contributes, perhaps. It's just a theory. And I'd l- I want to know what, what people think about that. I, me too, because I think
3: uh, sex is something that is behind closed doors. I mean, sometimes not. Um, but I think, you know, actually as a friend, I don't talk to masses of friends about my sex life or ask them about theirs and there can be so many reasons why sex, you know, isn't happening at a certain stage. It can There can be so much behind it, or maybe there isn't much behind it. But it, I think it's um, something that is hard to talk about. And as a gay man, do I feel it's hard to talk to straight people? Mm, I don't think so. And I've never been in a relationship longer than two years, so... I haven't experienced that
2: mm. yet. Stephen Fry said this thing which was some man was having a go at him about anal sex. Do you remember that? No. And he said, what makes you think I have anal sex? <gasps> Love it. You know, you don't know anything about me and actually I don't. And so many LGBT <laughs> Q plus relationships have very different approaches to what they call sex and therefore you can feel like you're failing because you're not doing certain things. Uh, I mean, yes. You know, It's a real thing that people don't discuss in heterosexual relationships at all. But I think it would be really nice to hear from our listeners about it. And can it become something that's like the elephant in the room. Exactly. So, yeah, please email in or tweet at atwillyoung, hashtag homosapiens. Hey, well, speaking of Twitter... <clears throat> it's time for some tweeting. We were thinking about breakups this week. We were thinking about relationships, I suppose, but we were thinking about what's the most awkward breakup story you've ever heard? We've had some really, really funny responses. Grant Gulfzinski has said, "I ended it with someone in the middle of sex, but they had to stay the night as it was snowing." Oof. Grant, Grant. I'm not sure about that. Oof. That's punchy. Kirk Wheeland Foreign. Has said, "I have one for you. Remind me tomorrow. It involves a rock, a window, and forty-nine missed calls." That's my acting agent. Yeah. <laughs> sure. should, we, should we call him and ask him? <laughs> should we get him on the phone? Yeah. yeah. Let's get him on the phone, Kirk. Oh my God, I can't you can't do leave that. us hanging with that. I'm not sure if we have reception here.
3: William. So, uh, Chris and Will here from Homo Sapiens. Hi. Um, So, what happened?
5: (laughs) We've all made those mistakes, dating somebody that we absolutely should not have been dating. Yes. Ended up calling this guy. Yeah. It was a booty call, let's be honest. Yeah. This this guy lived in Richmond. I lived in Battersea. He still lived with his mum. So, I make this booty call. I then fall asleep with my phone next to my bed. (laughs) Wake up at 4am to 49 missed phone calls Wow! and a great big crack in <laughs> my bedroom window because he'd been throwing rocks at the window to try and wake me up. <laughs> so I wake up in a complete day thinking... Fuck, what have I done? Then suddenly go, perfect. I'm dumped. I don't have to go through any of the rigmarole. Yeah. Absolutely fine. He then calls me. He apologizes for breaking the window, for trying to wake me up. I then do another 24 hours and then tell him that it's not working out and that he's got to pay for the broken window. No!
3: Yes. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Wow.
2: That's really funny.
3: Kirk, you've been our first <laughs> caller in to yeah. the Homo sapiens. Oh, I? So thank you. We will be charging this phone call back to you. <laughs>
5: Fabulous. Just send me the
3: invoice. Um, Can I t- share a story with you? Yeah, please. My last relationship, I just want to tell you, I'm not bitter about this. Mm-hmm. I'll be the judge. I'm not, honestly. It's all forgiven. I was let go by WhatsApp
2: you were yeah that was so unkind it was a bit unkind wasn't
3: it that he used emojis to do i think the emojis was i kind of couldn't believe it i did make my feelings known Mm -hmm. uh, in a very appropriate way through lawyers and rocks um similar to kirk's story Um, (laughs) no uh, i sort of understood it it was a bit of a surprise and apparently when i mentioned it to friends because i thought what does anyone else do this Quite a few people I know have been dumped by WhatsApp. Yes. So I wonder if anyone has been. I don't know if we have any emails to that effect. It certainly was hurtful and it
2: was uh, a surprise. I'm not surprised about either of those things. It's horrible.
3: I have forgiven and uh, he's a lovely guy. (laughs) I know, Nelly, it was hard for us all.
2: <laughs> it was a hard time. Nelly loved him. Social media and all those things makes people cowards, and I don't like it.
3: It does, and the thing is that we can all act cowardly, but that sense of guilt will stay with us somewhere.
2: You carry you. I think it, you said you. a very good, wise mm. thing to me once, didn't you, about people? And- always. It's always wise. Always. always. You know when someone does something really sharky to you, like they just ghost you, stop replying to your text messages about how you work out that they're done. They will always carry that around with them and know that they did something mean. It's not It's not actually an an easy way out. I think it's a harder way out because then you've got to stay... It stays with you and you feel... And then you have to try and avoid them every time you walk through oh, town I, or whatever. I completely agree with you. I remember,
3: and I can't remember if I said this before, I was working with a makeup artist and I felt I could wasn't able to cope with not working with her anymore and telling her. Mm. I carried that, I'm not joking, for ten years until mm. I saw her at a concert and I said to her, I just say I I've carried this and I really want to tell you I'm sorry. Mm. And she was like, oh my God, I don't even remember it. I would have carried that to my deathbed. Mm. I felt so awful about it. I think you're right. So better to do the good thing for oneself as well as the other
2: person. Treat yeah. people
3: with respect. <laughs>
2: That's a little taster of some of our Twitter comments We'll have more of them coming up But what's first, William?
3: Peter Tatchell's interview
2: <laughs> We drove to Peter's flat in South London Very good driving, Will, thank you How are you feeling about it, Will?
3: Uh, I feel good um, I'm a huge fan of his And uh, I'm quite interested in sort of getting like behind the man Not
2: in a sort of like pushy way, but in a kind of pushy way
3: I suppose, to be honest, he's been the most prominent gay
2: activist that I've ever known. He feels like the godfather of LGBT.
3: Yeah, he does. And I just, I think people, it's like all the other people we want to speak to and have been speaking to. I really believe that people um, should hear his story. I bought him flowers and we bought cake. Walked me through the cake selection. So we have a nice chocolate, a uh, couple of chocolate little cakes, slightly moist. I need um, to talk to you about that. You don't like that? No, I ate one. You've already eaten one of the
2: cakes? Yeah, sorry. They're for Peter.
5: I know. How
3: did I you get that? I
2: didn't even notice. I have eaten it. So here's what happened when we met Peter Tatchell.
3: We're in your sitting room, come study, come campaign centre. As you called it, HQ.
4: This tiny one-bedroom <laughs> flat, a very small headquarters, We're I've got never, to
3: say. It doesn't matter. And I just want to describe what I'm seeing around me. Placards, posters, sanctions against Saudi leaders who abuse human rights, Peter Tatchell Foundation. Some really interesting posters around, and a massive rainbow painting. And I haven't mentioned this painting above the sort of fireplace area. It's a painting of you, holding a placard saying freedom justice equality and peace
4: it's modeled on a photograph of me being arrested in moscow in 2007 when i went there to support the lgbt campaigners who were trying to hold a gay pride parade which was lawful under the russian constitution but was banned by the moscow mayor and you got badly beaten yeah. yeah Was that when you
3: got your brain injury?
4: That that, and in 2001, when I tried to arrest President Mugabe on charges of torture. At that time, I was actually beaten unconscious by his bodyguards. In front of cameras? In front of cameras, in front of the police. I want to come back to that.
3: You said to me that you're a minimal person...
4: Well, a minimalist. A minimalist. not a minimal <laughs> person, yeah. <laughs> You're a minimalist. I like, I like space and I don't like clutter. And, and as you can see, this is the exact opposite.
3: Well, it reminds me of a profe- what I think a professor's yeah. study would look like. A mad professor's um, study. Well, <laughs> ma- yeah, yeah. And then you, while well, you were making me a tea very kindly, you said how many emails and, or messages you get a day. And how many was that you said between
4: ranges roughly between 800 to 1200 every day wow and these are not nonsense these are you know people who have been victims of miscarriages of justice discrimination hate crime refugees plus all the campaign stuff requests to speak invitations to be interviewed to write articles you know it's it is completely overwhelming
3: so i feel like the volume of messages
4: that you get is kind of conveyed. There's an order to this chaos, yeah. but it is chaos, mm.
3: well, I bet and it is.
4: it's not a very good way to live, really. I really need a bigger place. You know, it'd be lovely to have an extra spare room where I could put all this stuff and organise it as sort of the the library, the archive, the the study. Mm. Then I could reclaim my sofa, which is this under is, there. Yeah.
3: So, this is You can't even see it, can you? This you is would... underneath the no. rainbow picture. There's a sofa.
4: Yeah. Which hasn't been sat on probably for 15 or 20 years. And the bedroom is not much better. <laughs> we need to get Kim
3: and Aggie into this place. That's what we need to do.
4: Pronto.
3: Can we take you back to the beginning? The beginning?
2: <laughs> yeah. Day
3: one. The <laughs> womb, yes. Let's do some reg- regressional therapy. <laughs> um, where did you grow up? I know you, you grew up in a very Christian family.
4: A very Christian family. Like, you know, Jeanette Winterson's oranges are not the only fruit. That's my family. Like, really hardline, evangelical, quasi-fundamentalist Christian. And where, where was that? Where did you grow up? Where was home? I was born in Melbourne, Australia. In 1952, so just seven years after the end of the Second World War. And the war was quite impactful in my childhood because growing up as a young boy, all the films, comics and books are nearly all about the war. And how did that impact you? Well, I didn't have the maturity until I was about 10 or 12 to start thinking to myself, how come people let Hitler come to power? Why didn't they do something? Why didn't they stop him? before he got out of control. And I can remember thinking to myself, probably about the age of eleven, if I was ever confronted with a similar sort of tyranny or injustice, I wouldn't just sit by on the sidelines. I'd want to try and do something with other people to help stop it. Like I remember the most significant earliest thing I can remember was in nineteen sixty three, when I was eleven years old, on the news, hearing about the bombing of a black church in Birmingham, Alabama where four young girls about my own age were killed by white racists. And I can very clearly remember thinking to myself at that time, how could anyone kill another human being, let alone four young girls in church on a Sunday morning? Mm. And that prompted my interest in the black civil rights movement. And because of my devoutly religious upbringing, I could very much relate to that movement because it was obviously very strongly religious influence. And the leader was a Baptist pastor, Martin Luther King. I made that connection, you know, between faith and social conscience, faith and social activism. Then the next thing that was really interesting was when I was 17, when I realized I was gay. And I can remember it was late 1969. I read a, a small report about a gay rights protest in New York. This was after the Stonewall riots, there was a subsequent protest. And I remember thinking to myself, yes, that's what we need here. That's what we need everywhere. And I want to be part of it. Because in those days in Melbourne, Australia, uh, homosexuality was still totally illegal. You could be jailed for several, several years and even forced to undergo compulsory psychiatric treatment. So it was pretty grim. There were no gay organisations, no helplines, no counselling services, absolutely nothing. So it was a very, very quite hostile, isolated life for a a gay person. But I wanted to do something, and I tried to persuade my friends, but they were all too scared. So in frustration, all I could do was I wrote letters to newspapers, making the case for gay law reform and uh, challenging homophobic newspaper reports. And I'm not too sure what the effect and value of what I did, but I I tried. I was doing something when it appeared that no-one else was doing anything reflecting on the black civil rights movement at 17 in 1969 i thought well if black people are an oppressed minority then so too are gay people and if black people have got equal claims to justice so have we and so that conceptualized joining, joining the dots yeah way, exactly for yourself and yeah. then for others yeah. yeah so i i listened and learned from the black civil rights movement and adapted those ideas and. Looking at the history of the Civil rights movement, I calculated that it would probably take about 50 years to win LGBT equality in countries like Australia, Britain and the United States. And so it has turned out more or less.
2: Well,
3: What jettisoned you
4: from Australia to the UK? I'd always wanted to travel, but the impetus was that Australia was fighting alongside the Americans in Vietnam at the time and there was a draft for the Vietnam War. And I very easily and quickly realised that that war was totally in, unjust and immoral. We were propping up a, a cruel dictatorship in Saigon, and terrible, terrible human rights abuses were happening. You know, The mass indiscriminate bombing of civilian areas, um, you know, the use of defoliation chemicals, which people are still suffering from the consequences of today. So I wasn't prepared to even register for national service. And the penalty was two years' imprisonment. That was the added impetus to leave the country. And I thought I'd come to Britain for a couple of years. But I came to Britain, fell in love, got a good job, got a nice flat.
2: When you came to London then, did you have a group of people who were like-minded, who you could talk to, or did it all start on its own?
4: It was actually the second day I was in London... I was walking the Oxford Circus and saw a sticker on a lamppost advertising the meetings of the Gay Liberation Front.
3: Right. So I was like, yes!
4: <laughs> Five days later, I was at my first Gay Liberation Front meeting and within a month I was helping to organise all their many of their spectacular protests.
3: Tell me about the Chepstow pub.
4: This was in late 1971. In those days there were some pubs, bars, clubs, restaurants cafes that would not serve gay people so the Gay Liberation Front decided that we would go to these various pubs and demand to be served and if refused sit down and occupy the place this was my idea having all the knowledge of the black civil rights movement I thought well they use sit-ins against you know lunch counters and other places that refuse to serve black people so we can use that same tactic to places that refuse to serve gay people and that's what we did and, of course, the owners would eventually call the police. And, well, in one particular time, I remember the Chepstow pub that you referred to, it wasn't the local police that arrived. They sent, you know, the flying squad. They came in, I think, in black mariahs. You know, these are people that dealt with armed robberies and, you know. <laughs> so we were one by one picked up and taken out, put in the alleyway at the side of the pub. where Then we were made to strip search down to our underpants and then a big burly sergeant came along and put his hands into people's underpants and squeezed their testicles till we screamed in those days the police were a law unto themselves you couldn't do anything about it but eventually we went back again and again and the landlord did realise that it was ruining his business and that he would better serve us Otherwise, we'd keep on coming back. And then, as the noise and publicity about what we'd done spread, lots of other pubs and bars and restaurants decided, no, no, it's too much trouble, let's just, let's just serve them. So it was a very effective tactic to end what was effectively a ban on LGBT people.
3: Through the 70s and 80s, well, you're a freelance journalist, and then I'm interested in how the media started seeing
4: you But, of course, the big intervening thing was that in 1983, I stood in the Bermondsey by-election as a left-wing Labour candidate. From here? From here, yeah. And a pro-gay rights candidate. You know, not only was I arguing for the repeal of all anti-gay sexual offences laws, but for comprehensive laws to protect LGBT people and others against discrimination, for education about LGBT issues in schools, for action on homophobic biophobic and transphobic hate crime and bullying. And of course, I was very much pilloried and demonized by the tabloid press and political opponents because I was gay and because I supported gay rights.
1: When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At Nile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door.
3: What kind of language was used then towards you?
4: Well, all around the constituency, there were slogans daubed on walls in three foot high letters. Tatchell is a communist poof. Tatchell is a nigger lover. Uh, Tatchell is queer. Leaflets were distributed anonymously. Let him know what you think. This is his phone number. This is his address.
3: And what happened from that? <laughs>
4: Well, I had bricks and bottles through the windows, uh, three arson attempts, a bullet through the front door, and I was physically beaten up, not once or twice, but dozens of times in the street, either going to or from my flat, going to the local shops, when I was out canvassing, going door to door.
3: How did you start feeling when that kind of... You being physically attacked and mm. becoming far more publicly known?
4: Mm. Well, of course, it wasn't just that. it was It was like non-stop attacks in the tabloid press. The tabloids had open season on me, so they'd publish doctored photographs to make it look as though I had plucked eyebrows and was wearing lipstick and eyeshadow.
3: Did you ever question what you were doing then? when your safety's being...
4: Yeah, I was very afraid. You know, I thought I could be killed. There were three attempts to run me down, in, once in a car and twice in a van. On the night of the by-election result two special branch officers confided in me that he's... They, I know, words were something like, Mr Tatchell, you don't realise how much danger you've been in. You could have easily been killed.
3: And you never had a time
4: when you thought... No, my reaction was stubborn. <laughs> I'm not going to let the bastards drive me away. But I was scared. It was like living through a low-level civil war. Against you? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Like, every time I came into this flat... On, on police advice and, and my own common sense, never switch on the lights if it's dark. Come into the dark flat, close all the blinds and windows. They said there could be someone out there with a with a gun to shoot you.
3: Do you feel safe in here now?
4: Yes, now. It's cramped and overcrowded, and <laughs> well, you could hide
3: under these petal, these boxes. These yeah, well, I
4: mean, in in the last I'd say five ten years the level of hate and attacks has dramatically reduced. In fact, there hasn't been a a physical violent attack for at least five years.
3: Do you think that correlates with how, one, your perception has changed over that period and how much gay rights has come
4: on? In many ways, what happened to me was a barometer of social attitudes towards LGBT people. So in that period when there was so much homophobia, biophobia and transphobia... I was seen by many people as the personification of what they hated, so I was targeted. So I had thousands, thousands of hate letters, and I've got all in my archive there. There's there's a pile of about three thousand of Where's them. Where's your archive? Oh well, really? it's all it's there, there, there. Can't uh, you read one? Let me try and find. I think my one my might be down there. Oh, you found one. Yeah, yeah. Dear Peter, it should now be clear to you that the people of Bermondsey have no intention of electing a cock-sucking, ass fucking communist puff as their MP. You should therefore confine yourself to doing what you appear to be good at. You may be excellent at pulling cocks, but you certainly cannot pull the votes. I've been a lifelong member of the Labour Party, but I resigned when I heard that trash like you can become, become official candidates. For the sake of the Labour movement, fuck off. We don't want fairies. So I was a magnet for homophobes. And I did have around me a group of wonderful supportive friends. But, you know, there were a lot of very, very dark moments. And I, of course, as a result of these, these attacks, you know, I had really severe post-traumatic stress disorder, where I'd have nightmares reliving the attacks. And I'd literally, in the shock, jump about six inches off the bed and sit bot upright, and it would feel like my heart was going to burst out of my chest.
2: I wanted to ask you about the citizen's arrest on Robert Mugabe, but also to ask what goes through your mind when you're about to do something like that.
4: I've done about, well, over 3,000 acts of non-violent direct action and civil disobedience on a whole range of issues from anti-war to anti-apartheid, green issues, LGBT rights and so on. The basic model or template is taken from the Black Civil Rights Movement. And of course, always, I would prefer to have been able to go and sit down and have a cup of tea with a government minister or an archbishop and we would work things out. But when they aren't even prepared to meet you, let alone engage in any serious dialogue or come to any kind of resolution to change things, then you've got two options. Either give up and walk away or escalate. And the Black Civil Rights Movement showed that when Congress and the President wouldn't listen to the just claims for an end to segregation in the Deep South, that they had to do more radical direct action tactics. So I've always seen direct action as a pivotal part of the campaign, but it's not the only method. It's more a way to raise awareness and to provoke a crisis to force the authorities to address an issue. The outrage actions in the 1990s were about like invading and occupying police stations that were targeting gay people for raids and arrests, interrupting the press conferences of the Metropolitan Police Commissioner over his forces' homophobic policing policies.
3: Kissing Uh, in Trafalgar Square.
4: Kissing in Trafalgar Square in defiance of the ban on expressing same-sex affection.
3: Hounding Uh, Michael Portillo.
4: Hounding Michael Portillo when he was Defence Secretary and he was hounding LGBT people out of the armed forces. So we thought, let's hound him back. Let's at least show him that we're not going to sit back and do nothing while he witch hunts LGBT people.
3: And he eventually did a a U-turn, didn't he? He did. and,
4: and... And I thanked him for it. With every direct action, there are two big fears. One is of not succeeding. The other fear is of being beaten up and arrested, or both. <laughs> so there's always an incredible nervous tension. And the usual physical manifestation is that I, I get an incredible nervous tension headache. So my head is absolutely pounding with stress and anxiety. My body temperature plummets. So it can even be a hot day and I'm almost shivering. My stomach is churning over. I feel like I'm vomiting or urinating or defecating because I'm, the, the nervous tension is so great. So it's, it's actually a very unpleasant experience. And in my mind, I just have to psych myself to think, well, I have to do this for the sake of some greater good. If this succeeds, we'll help raise awareness about this issue. If this succeeds, we'll help put the authorities on the spot. The media will go to them. They'll be forced to answer and address our questions. I owe it to the people in wherever to do this to support them.
3: And then you went for Mugabe. Yeah,
4: well, there there were two separate arrest attempts. One was in London in 1999, where myself and three outraged colleagues ambushed his limousine. It wasn't over gay rights issues. It was over the question of his collusion with the torture of two black journalists and indeed many thousands of other Zimbabweans. And initially I I organised some pickets outside the Zimbabwean, what was then the Zimbabwean High Commission, but didn't really make much impact. So then I thought, well, we've got to do something more, more provocative, more confrontational, grab public attention to get this issue in the news. So I hit on the idea, how about using the power of citizens' arrest to get him put on trial on charges of torture. Now, under British law in many countries, a private citizen has the right to arrest a person if they have evidence that they have committed a crime. I chose torture rather than anything else because the laws against torture have a universal jurisdiction and they're enshrined in British law. And under those laws, anyone who commits, condones, authorises, or acquiesces in acts of torture anywhere in the world, can be arrested and put on trial. So the legal basis for a citizen's arrest was cast iron. And, of course, i have got from Amnesty International a dossier on the torture of two black journalists, Ray Chiodo and Mark Javenduka, whom Mugabe acknowledged had been tortured and effectively approved and admitted to authorising their torture. So the legal case was very, very strong. Then, of course, came the big question, how and when to do this? And lo and behold, it wasn't that many months later that um, I got a late-night phone call on a Thursday evening at about midnight. A guy with a strong African-sounding accent said, You may be interested to know that President Mugabe has arrived in London this evening. He's on a private shopping trip at Harrods. He's going to be staying at St James's Court Hotel in Victoria. He'll be flying back to Harare at 6pm on Saturday night from Heathrow Airport. And then I rang around people who might help me try and arrest him. And I've never heard so many... Plausible excuses in my life. (laughs) I've got to work this weekend. Um, My boyfriend, girlfriend's coming down to London. Um, I'm off on holiday tomorrow. Um, I'm not feeling very well. (laughs) In the end, the only people I could find who were willing were three other members of Outrage to come with me on the Saturday morning to try and arrest him at his hotel. And so we turned up. The four of us, plus I'd arranged for a photographer, a journalist, and a video person to come, so we'd have independent corroboration. The idea was to hopefully succeed, but if we didn't succeed, at least get a, a major news story which would help highlight Mugabe's human rights abuses and, you know, raise public awareness, you know. So it was a freezing cold Sunday morning. We arrived at 8.30, because we knew he had to leave the hotel at some point to go to get his flight at 6pm. We didn't know what time, but we knew he'd have to leave at some point. So we thought well, he was probably not going to leave before 8.30, so we, we turned up at 8.30. We tried looking inconspicuous. One guy went into a phone box and pretended to make phone calls. Another one stood at a bus stop reading a newspaper. Other couple of us looked in shop windows. But, hey, after a couple of hours... You do look conspicuous, and I noticed that the concierge of the hotel—this is a very fancy hotel, so top hat and tails—you know—he came out and stood on the steps and started looking at all of us. I thought to myself, "That's not good. If he's—he's he's obviously noticed we've been here for a long time, and he's probably wondering who we are. If he phones the police, you know, as soon as they see me, it'll all—that'll be, that'll be the end of it, you know." We'll be arrested. I was getting a bit depressed at that stage, and even more nervous and more anxious. The headache was getting stronger. Then about 10 minutes later or so, out from the side vehicle entrance came five or six African-looking guys who started looking and pointing in our direction. If they think there is a potential threat, either he won't come out or they'll call the police and we'll all be arrested and the whole thing will fail. So... In those circumstances, it's really hard to think on your feet. I was almost despairing, and and the the head was just pounding and pounding, but somehow I suddenly had a brainwave. So I walked straight across the road, smiling and beaming and holding out my hand to shake their hand, saying, Hi, guys. I'm from News of the World. And these are my fellow journalists, my photographer, my video person. We're here because we had a tip-off that Elton John is in the hotel with his new boyfriend, We've got to get the story for tomorrow's paper. Can you tell us which room he's in? They looked at me like I was mad. <laughs> I knew they weren't buying it. So I said, look, I'll give you £50 if you tell us which room he's in. Please, we've got to get the story for tomorrow's paper. It'll kill me if I don't get the story. Please help us. I'll give you £75. They shook their heads. I'll give you £100. I only had £10 in my pocket. <laughs> They still weren't buying it. And then suddenly, amazingly, I had another idea. I just turned to one of them. I said, I know you. You are part of Elton John's security team. I saw you at his Wembley concert two months ago. It wasn't any Wembley concert two months ago. (laughs) You wouldn't be here if Elton wasn't in this hotel. You're here. You're part of his team. You're not here for any other reason to protect him. Please tell us which room he's in. And this guy burst out laughing and then started speaking in Zimbabwe dialect, Shona or Nebideli, to his mates. And They all burst out laughing and walked away. I walked away and thought, I think I might have convinced them. And sure enough, 10, 15 minutes later, out from the side entrance came President Mugabe in his limousine. I scratched the top of my head to indicate it was him in the car and my colleagues my three colleagues from outrage ran straight out in front of his speeding limousine. It screeched to a halt, less than a foot from their legs. Then one ran behind the car, so it couldn't go forward, it couldn't go backward. I ran from the side and opened the left-hand rear car door. Amazingly, it was unlocked. And there in front of me was President Mugabe of Zimbabwe. What did you do? I reached in and gently took his arm with my right hand, then held out my left hand with an open palm to show I didn't have a weapon, and then said, President Mugabe, you're under arrest. You should have seen the look on his face. What? His eyes popped, his jaw dropped. He put up his other hand in front of his face. He shrank back in his seat. He looked like a frightened 10-year-old boy. I thought to myself, he thinks he's going to be killed.
3: In that moment, this is
4: going in through your head. This is going through my head. He thinks he's going to be killed. And And then then I thought to myself, now he knows what his victims feel like. I know we aren't going to kill him, but we'll take him to a court of law and he'll have a chance to defend himself. So then we summons the police. Initially, only three officers arrived.
3: Uh, How long did it take for them to get?
4: Only about five minutes because...
3: What was going on in that five-minute period?
4: Well, his bodyguards were trying to wrestle me away from the car door and I was holding on, like, for grim life. For uh, five minutes? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And
3: people in, in the front of the car and back of the car?
4: Yeah, the, my colleagues were standing in front of the car and behind the car, so I couldn't move forward, couldn't move backwards. Meanwhile, three or four of his bodyguards were trying to wrench me away from the, the car door, but I was holding on for dear life and they couldn't, could, couldn't prize me away. So come. the police come and we explained who we were and who was in the car. They were absolutely gobsmacked. They said, you mean the president of Zimbabwe? Yes. <laughs> and here's the papers for his arrest. Anyway, they just, they knocked the papers out of our hands and then proceeded to try and arrest us. So I was eventually prized away from the car door. They took, took two officers to drag me away and put me on the pavement. Then they went, to go back and get my colleagues and drag them away. But then I just jumped up from the pavement and ran back in front of the car. (laughs) So there's this cat and mouse game. Every time they'd remove someone, they'd put them on the pavement, and then as soon as they went to get the next person, the person on the pavement would run back in front of the car. Probably five minutes later or so, about 20 officers arrived in a number of vans, and then we were all arrested and very aggressively and quite, quite violently arrested. Even though we were acting perfectly lawfully... Under the powers of citizens' arrest, even though we had the evidence, so we were taken to Belgravia Police Station, where we spent the next six and a half hours in the cells, while the police discussed framing us on a whole series of charges: uh, behaviour like a course of breach of the peace, obstructing the highway, uh, criminal damage, even riot and affray. Meanwhile, President Mugabe was given a police escort to go Christmas shopping at Harrods. What was interesting was that in the weeks afterwards, I had about 5,000 emails from people in Zimbabwe, black and white. Nearly all of them said the same thing. We thought no one knew what was happening. We thought no one cared. So psychologically and emotionally, it was a huge boost for people in Zimbabwe because what we did made world news all over the world and it really did help raise awareness about the human rights abuses happening there.
3: I remember seeing you on TV when I was younger and I've been really interested in my... As I've got older, obviously, and then I came out and became more interested in the world and what I thought about the world and more and more familiar with you, probably through the media. Do you feel now that you're recognised by the establishment, do you feel accepted by the government?
4: Well, for me, it's never about gaining personal acceptance. The acceptance is only, for me, a means to an end it's important that it gives me a more effective platform to champion the causes that I espouse.
3: The Peter Tatchell Foundation, here we are in your home and your headquarters. You have a small space somewhere else where you work with two other people. I look at other charities that... We're not a charity
4: yet. Sorry, sorry. We've still been blocked from being a charity. Why are you blocked from being a charity? Well, we are going to make a third attempt at charity status shortly. But one of the reasons given in the past is because we support and advocate and campaign for same-sex marriage. We were told that is not a legitimate charitable purpose. That's a political campaign. Yet the Charity Commission has given charity status to other organisations like Stonewall that campaign for equal marriage, eventually. (laughs) Eventually, Stonewall did. And they have given charitable status to many organisations like the Christian Institute who campaign against same-sex marriage. So, So there seemed like double standards there.
3: How do you manage to survive
4: year on year? Well, for nearly 45 years, I did human rights work totally unpaid and from 1983 onwards that was full time and when I say full time I don't mean 40 hours a week I mean like 60, 70, <laughs> 80 hours a week <laughs> but since the setting up of the Pediatric Foundation by friends and supporters now I get you know a salary as a director but in that period for 45 years I was doing bits of research and journalism and I was living on five to 7,000 pounds a year which in London it's tough and that, that was the case until you know just five years ago lots of winters I couldn't afford to put in the central heating I'd wander around the house with two pairs of trousers and three pullovers a hat and woolly boots <laughs> Yeah, it has has been tough but then again when I put it in perspective in terms of the global population of the world I am one of the richest 10% This this tiny little flat I, I haven't got a washing machine there's no space for it I haven't got a shower, I've got a little handheld thing. But this is luxury by comparison to the way 4,000 million people on this planet live. How do you relax? <laughs> With difficulty and very rarely. <laughs>
2: <laughs> what about exercise?
4: To work 100... Just seeing the to, dumbbells yeah, on the floor. To, to work 100 hours a week. I haven't had a holiday since 2008. I work 100 hours plus a week at a relentless pace. This, this is relaxation by comparison. This, this interview is like relaxation. It's, so, it's sort of work, training. but it's, it's relaxation <laughs> by comparison. You <We> normally <laughs> send people to sleep. Yeah. <laughs> Still with us? So more sugar. <laughs> yeah. Since since the nineteen seventies, I've been doing a little workout, more than adapted on the Canadian Air Force manual. So for my party trick, punch. He's
3: he's getting me to punch him. Will is punching people. Rock solid. No, rock solid. Peter's stomach is rock solid. How and you can
4: feed the ridges. He's not.
3: He, what the fuck do you do? You've got a six-pack. Why don't you bring out an At exercise... At 64,
4: book? not bad. <laughs> you should bring out an exercise. <laughs> My own version of Jane Fonda. You heard it here first, <laughs> <laughs> folks. Hello. Personal yeah, listen, life? Listen to music? Uh, not much. Who, who would put up with me? I have had... Well, over the last years, I've probably had two or three brief affairs with people, but... They've always, well, w- I had to get back to America. So that was the, reason. But the other two. My life is too stressful and too unpredictable and too intense.
3: Well, would it be hard? Which I can
4: understand, you know.
3: OK, I would find it hard if I had hmm. the beginnings of a relationship and then I'm getting 50 emails minimum of an evening of all these people asking for help. How do you stop? It's a bit like Batman. When do you go off? You're like Batman. When do you make that? Where is my Robin? It's true. It's true. <laughs>
4: yeah, well, I
3: mean, they were great. How much do you exercise self-care? When do you switch
4: off? Not enough. I mean, I do know that it's not sustainable. The brain and eye injuries are causing a gradual deterioration. Yeah, they don't stop me, but it's it's more difficult. Like I, I noticed I was doing a talk to the Oxford Theological Society the other night and beyond the third or fourth row, I couldn't, I, I could see people though were all just blurred. And that's the brain injury from... What's the eye injury? The eye injury. Really. Yeah, that's from the, I got bashed straight in the eye by a neo-Nazi in Moscow in 2007. Then the brain injuries, but that's from that, but also pre- previously, I, when I tried the second citizen's arrest to President Mugabe in 2001 in Brussels then his henchman beat me unconscious. And I had sort of like semi paralysis right down the left side of my body for nearly a week. And that causes things like difficulty in concentration, memory loss, poor coordination and balance. So I have to be really careful when I'm riding my bike. I have actually come off a couple of times because I've just lost my balance. Mm-hmm. Because the, the part of the brain that affects the balance has been damaged.
3: Alison John said... Do you know the description that he said about you? No. You live how Jesus would have lived. Please. <laughs> as in, I think what he meant by that is you live as someone who comes from a place of
4: love, and I think that's very rare. Love is, is that, that's, that's a very important thing to me. I've always said that love, to me, is the beginning, the middle and the end of liberation. You know, there can be no liberation movement worth anything unless it's inspired by love. If you're inspired by love, then you're pretty much certain to do the right thing. You do need a bloody cleaner though, Peter. Cleaner? For God's sake. No, it's not dirty, it's just it, dusty. You
3: need to sort it out. <laughs> when you think about arson attacks, there's so much paper here. Yeah, this this is <laughs> this and would, would be the,
4: the bonfire of all bonfires if this ever caught light. <laughs> That was Peter Tatchell.
3: Chris, how did you feel leaving that interview?
2: Full. <laughs> Me too. Lot of cake. Chocolate. Too much. I went to town. Demasiado. Well, it was, yeah, it was was needed. We were there for a long time, and I felt an enormous amount of respect for him. I was really interested to hear him speak. And the thing is, Peter is a brilliant campaigner, and he he knows how to speak. So sometimes that means that you can hear him say things that you've heard him say before. There's nothing wrong with that whatsoever. But what I felt great about and happy about our interview is that he... Had actually also had a conversation with us, and he had showed us a side of himself that perhaps is lesser known, and I think that was great. I agree.
3: Yeah, I think we've got some really nice, genuine, interesting, almost behind the scenes stuff, if you mm. will, Peter Tetris. Earlier, we asked you on Twitter uh, to get in touch about breakups, breakup stories. And we've had some very interesting responses. Chris.
2: Scotty T said he called it off with some guy. Then my car key broke in the ignition. So I had to go back and ask for a pair of pliers to fix it. Oops. Gosh, that's awkward. Kirsty Fowler says my husband and I went for dinner and a man dumped his girlfriend. She was... Next to us. She was really crying. He then asked if she still wanted to go to a party. Oh, my gosh. And what did she do? She poured a drink over his head. Oh, yeah, I like that. You go. Yeah, good. The world of fashion, there's a storm a-brewing. And what is it caused by? Us. Uh You.
3: The T-shirts. The T-shirts.
2: Yes, the Homo Sapiens T-shirts. From Paris to Milan, New York to Rio. There's about four people wearing them. <laughs> well, they're not because they haven't got them yet. There's one person wearing them and it's me. Oh. Well. I've got mine. Shall I get the pile of T-shirts while I'm on the show? I'm going to do it now because I okay, forget. He's Let gonna, me wait Chris, there one sec. Chris is going to go and get the T-shirts. Um, oh, now, good. Good. I'm going to do good. a QVC moment. Just feel the ply of the cotton there. I think
3: it's the new version of the Catherine Hamnett t-shirts of the 80s. Oh, and we, should, we can also start putting some slogans. Yes. Um, Shall we rip out the Fruit of the Loom labels?
2: Yes. <laughs> Hello. It's really, I
3: have them in my hand. It's not so it's a crew neck t-shirt. It has our very simple stylish logo as designed by C.S. Yours truly. Okay. Um, and and how do you win one, Will? You win one by getting in touch with us, reviewing the podcast on Apple Podcasts. When people review us, that means points, and points mean prizes, and then we all go home happy. I might wear this because I've sweated through this this
0: sweatshirt.
3: We want to know what you think of... Uh, the Peter Sachin interview of anything we've said please tweet at Will Young including the hashtag homo sapiens or you can email us hello at homo dot com Should we say goodbye? Is it time for a theme tune? Time to, to oh. say goodbye, goodbye. Hmm Da da
2: that's so lovely are those tears rolling down my
1: cheeks?
2: Oh my
0: gosh Have Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well,